As we turn to our scripture, we are um, coming back to the Genesis story. When we left off a few weeks ago, we had spent a couple weeks with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. And you may remember that um, Isaac had been born to Sarah and Ishmael had been born to Hagar. And now that we come back to the story, we're in the next generation. So Isaac, has, Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, have had two sons, Esau and Jacob. They're twins, but Esau is the eldest. Esau is born first, followed by um, Jacob grabbing at Esau's heel. Uh, so Esau is the eldest, um, the one who is to inherit. And Jacob, bless his heart, Jacob is trouble. He's one of my favorite biblical characters. Um, but by the point in this story, they have, they have grown up and Jacob, with the help of his mother, has managed to finagle his way into getting both Esau's birthright and Esau's blessing. So most of everything that Esau has, Jacob has pulled his way and Esau's not exactly happy about that. Esau is enraged. Esau's <laughs> out for blood. Their mother sees this. So she does her best to get Jacob out of town. She sends him back to their, their initial homeland to find a wife. He sets out on the journey away from everything he knows out into the wilderness. And on the first night, he arrives in a certain place. Weary, he finds a stone uh, to lay his head on as a pillow, and he has a dream. And that's the story that we will hear now. And I'm going to invite Dave to come and read uh, this passage from Genesis 28. Dave. Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he set it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And God stood beside him and said, I am God, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread around to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely God is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! There is none other, this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. Thanks be Thanks. to God. We celebrate the living word. Christ among us. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Holy God, present with us now, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to do your will. Amen. 
So, have you been having vivid dreams lately? I ask that because evidently that's a thing. During these days of pandemic and sheltering, more and more people are having and remembering more dreams, vivid dreams. The first hint of this was in April when there was a spike in the Google search. Is anyone else having vivid dreams? And apparently the answer is yes. I know I've been dreaming more, or at least remembering dreams more, and I've heard some of you say the same. In one dream I remember from a few weeks ago, I'm, I'm standing at the kitchen sink washing dishes. Hillary Clinton is there with me, and we're talking about how important the simple, ordinary things in life have been to her since she lost the election. Deirdre Barrett, psychologist and professor at Harvard Medical School, has begun to research what she calls this pandemic dreaming to interview folks. And she started to collect what seems to be a wave of vivid dreams. As she's beginning to work with the dream data that she's collecting, Dr. Barrett explains that a number of factors seem to have come together to make more dreaming more likely. For those on the hospital front lines, there is trauma that is generating trauma dreams. For the rest of us, we're experiencing what's the equivalent of a major life change, a major disruption, and as we stay closer to home and shelter, folks are getting more sleep, not necessarily all of it restful sleep, but with more sleep, there's more chance that we'll enter into the REM, the REM sleep where dreaming happens. Now it's amazing how Dr. Barrett describes it. As we sleep, different parts of our brain rest while other parts go into action. The verbal areas slow down while the visual areas get more active. What's going on when we dream is often a continuation of our day, but we're processing all this in this other state of consciousness. So Dr. Barrett says it's not surprising that there seems to be a correlation from what she's seeing between being anxious by day and having anxiety dreams by night. And these days our waking life is more dreamlike, more surreal, as some folks deal with daily vivid trauma, and as we all collectively move through a world with both this sometimes acute fear of pandemic and the foggy haze of sheltering. Another psychologist, Ruben Nyman, explains, when our life is more vivid, so are our dreams. In this morning's scripture, Jacob has a vivid dream. I found a great commentary on this scripture by our own Jana Childers, and she says Jacob has one of the great dreams in the history of dreaming. Now at the outset, it's important to say that folks in the biblical world would have understood dreams and dreaming differently than we do. Everything I've just said presupposes and flows out of the modern disciplines of psychology, psychiatry, and brain science. In the biblical world, and as we see in this scripture, Dreams were understood as one way to experience an actual appearance of God, a theophany. We have biblical stories of angels coming with a message during waking hours. We know those stories. This is a nighttime version of that. What's more similar to us, perhaps, like us, Jacob is certainly living an anxious life in an anxious time. Jacob is on the run. He's got himself into a mess. In a world where the second son doesn't have much of a chance, Jacob has 
with his mother's help, managed to finagle his elder brother's birthright and his elder brother's blessing. He's taken Esau's inheritance and covenant blessing, and not surprisingly, Esau is enraged and out for blood. Their mother sees this clearly, and before one son kills the other, she manages to get Jacob out of town, sending him back to Abraham's homeland to find a wife. Jacob will be gone and on the run for 10 years. And here Jacob is, maybe with a birthright and a blessing tucked away in his knapsack, but effectively exiled from his home and from his family, from everyone and everything he knows. And he journeys out into the wilderness to Haran. He goes as far as he can, and as night falls on a barren scrap of land, Jacob searches around for a place to lie down. He finds a rock that will do in a pinch as a pillow, and he lays his head on that rock, and he sleeps, and he dreams. In his restless, anxious, fearful sleep, Jacob dreams of a ladder. Now maybe it's more like a staircase or a ramp twisting and ascending, but a ladder rooted in the ground and ascending to the heavens with angels traveling up and down, shuttling back and forth between the earth and the heavens. And then God is there right beside Jacob. And God says, Jacob, I'm God. I'm your God, the God of your parents, the God of your people, and I've promised you land and a family. You will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Know that I am with you. I will go where you go. I won't leave you. I will do what I promise. And Jacob wakes up and says, surely, surely God is in this place. This is the house of God and the gateway to the heavens. And Jacob takes that stone pillow and he blesses it. This is the house of God. Whatever we think about dreams, what we see here with Jacob, what we experience here with Jacob is the nearness of God. In those first moments of 10 years of exile, when Jacob feels most alone, separated, isolated from everything he knows, what he sees and experiences is the nearness of God. Jacob sees this vision of a ladder connecting the earth to the heavens, no separation between the two angels going up and down, this constant commerce between heaven and earth. And then God speaks, not from the heavens, not even from that ladder, but right there beside him, Jacob, I am your God, I'm with you wherever you go, I won't leave you. And waking, Jacob declares, this is the house of God, God is here. God is near. Now notice where Jacob is. I won't say he's in the middle of nowhere because Jacob is somewhere. Scripture says he has come to a certain place, but it's unexpected. What Jacob names as the house of God is a bare scrap of wilderness where he could find nothing more than a rock or a pillow. We sometimes go to great lengths searching for a holy place, searching for an encounter with God. We go to the ocean and stand on the shore to hear the waves crash in, crash in. We hike a mountain trail to get a glimpse of the vastness of what God has made. We go to cathedrals and to church looking for holy ground. Jana Childers writes, sometimes we find the holy place, sometimes the holy place finds us. Sometimes we don't recognize that place as holy. Jacob, after all, fell asleep 
on his. In his dream, and when he woke, Jacob found God near. Someplace, somewhere, in an ordinary moment, in a tumultuous and an anxious life, Jacob found God near there. In that certain place with a promise that God would be near, in the next place too, and in the next. John Wesley said of this text, God is there where we did not think they had been, found where we did not ask. In an anxious and fearful world, Jacob finds God near, everywhere, all the time. Notice also that Jacob's experience, the nearness of God is inclusive. Neither the nearness of God nor Jacob's dream is for Jacob alone. God says, remember all the promises I've made to your people. I'm here with you too, and you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. This moment, this nearness of God, it's not just for Jacob or for his particular people. It's for the whole world. We often think of spiritual moments like this as deeply personal epiphanies, moments when we experience something so much bigger than us. They are personal and the nearness of God, when we experience it, it is for the whole world. The nearness of God in any given moment is not for us alone. Our dreams are not for us alone. The nearness of God is for the whole world, here, there, everywhere, as true for you as it is for me, as it is for everyone in the whole wide world. And that transforms how we experience those moments. God is just as near to you as God is to me. God is just as near to others who are worshiping right now in other spaces. God is just as near to those who are not worshiping. God is just as near to folks who are living and sleeping outside every night. God is just as near to children who lay down their heads to sleep in detention camps at the border. God is just as near to George Floyd in those last moments of his life. God is just as near in the hospital ICU rooms where nurses and doctors care for folks, hope against hope. If we name that and begin to see that God near everywhere with everyone, it has to transform the way that we see every situation, the way that we see other people. God just as present with them as with us. God just as concerned with their struggle as ours. God at work in the midst of the suffering of the whole wide world, near, near to particular people in particular pain, everyone, everywhere. We begin to see ourselves connected, connected to others by the nearness of God, by the abiding love of God. As we name that, and see that this nearness of God, it calls us to be near there too, to stand where God stands, to help God do what God does. I wanna give us a project for this week, and it's just to notice the nearness of God in every moment. Or if that feels like a stretch, then it is to name it before we see it. God is near, and then to wait to see how it appears. Celtic spirituality, a spirituality that emerged in Ireland and Scotland, has this sense of the nearness of God in all things as one of its hallmarks, what John Philip Newell calls the heartbeat of God in all creation. Celtic spirituality sees God present 
near in all things, and in that, a sense of deep connection, our connection to God, our connection to all creation, our connection to each other, deep connection in all the parts of life, no separation between our work and our prayer, one whole life. Esther DeWall describes it like this, God here and now, with me, close at hand, God present in life and in work, immediate and accessible. She calls it a down-to-earth spirituality in which God breaks in on the ordinary so that in any moment, any object, any job of work can become the time and place for an encounter with God. Now, one of the ways that that is named in Celtic prayer is in prayers of blessing. Blessing the ordinary and the everyday, and it works like this. We approach every moment in life recognizing that that moment is a gift from God with the potential for good. We then ask God to bless whatever is in that moment in us to create more good in the world. And so Celtic prayers of blessing go like this. Bless the earth beneath my foot in every step. May it lead me in a good and healthy path. Or bless my hands this morning. May they make something that is of use to the world. Or Bless this mask I'm making. May it keep someone safe. Our project this week, our something to do, is to try that type of blessing in our day-to-day -day moments. Bless this new morning that I might live this day to do good in the world. Bless this meal I'm preparing. May it nourish my family. Bless even this newscast that I'm listening to that I might with others figure out something to do. We name the nearness of God to the world in the ground beneath our feet, in our hands, in the work that we do, in the life that we live. That dream I had where I was washing dishes. Well, back in the 1600s, a monk named Brother Lawrence wrote about the spirituality of everyday tasks particularly washing dishes. He would even pray during his work in the monastery kitchen to what he called the Lord of the pots and pans. Where I stand in my kitchen to wash dishes, right behind me, there are several photographs, including one of me with Hillary Clinton when I met her at a campaign event way back in 1992. And washing dishes, well, that's pretty much what I do every day. I zoom, and I write, and I take a walk, and I make meals, and I wash dishes, and I sleep, and the next day I do all that again. All of that, Brother Lawrence, the photo of Hillary Clinton washing dishes, it's all rattling around up here in my head. That dream just gave me a glimpse of what I see every day and helped me make some meaning out of it. We are created to create. We are meaning makers, making meaning out of and into a fractured and a confusing world. Every moment of every day, God is near with us, blessing our hands that they might reach out in compassion, blessing our shoulders that we might be strong in the work of dismantling injustice, blessing our eyes that we might see the beauty of creation, our ears that we might truly listen to each other. God is near. As we speak of these days 
as days of distancing, and as we also name the nearness of God, we may find, we may find in these days that we are more connected than we ever knew. As we bless the ordinary moments of these ordinary days, we may find, we may find that God is nearer than we have ever imagined, or better yet, God is nearer than we have yet to imagine.